0: Hi, this is Henry Gross. You remember me from my big hit, Shannon, and I'm here with Robert Miller on his wonderful Follow Your Dream podcast.
1: Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the follow your dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning follow your dream podcast with listeners all over the world in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is the spectacular pianist and composer, Philip Auber. He recorded eight wonderful solo albums on Wyndham Hill records known for the new age music that they put out. He's performed on hits like Pulled Around and Fell in Love by Elvin Bishop, Shannon by Henry Gross, and Angel of the Morning by Juice Newton. He's played with the Boston Pops with Peter Gabriel, the Doobie Brothers, and on over 200 albums. And he's got Grammy and Emmy nominations too. How about all that? And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all of my musician guests, Phil and I are going to do a song fest. We're going to play a handful of his best works, just a little bit, give you a taste of them, and we'll talk about them, and you'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you know that I feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guests. And in this instance, I've chosen my song called Because She Said So from the album Play by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, Wyndham Hill, the label that Philip recorded for, was always known for that mellow vibe that they used to get on all their records. And I think my song has a similar mellow vibe and it could have been a hit on Wyndham Hill, just like Philip's albums. You decide for yourself. So, Phil Auberg, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby.
0: Thank you, Robert. So happy to be on this show. And I appreciate what you do. And There's so many of my friends and people i played with who have been on your show that it's an honor for me to be on it.
1: Well, my goal is to get every great musician that ever existed and is still alive on this show. So we're, <laughs> we're going down the path. <laughs> yeah. It's a pleasure. It really is. I got to start off. You know, sometimes things that just jump out at me when I read somebody's biography. And one of the things that jumped out at me from your biography is that you were born and raised in Montana, a hotbed of music,
0: huh? A hotbed of music, yeah, the birthplace of the blues. It's kind of off the beaten path. Tell us about it. Yeah, I was born here. I live here now. You know, I spent many, many years in the San Francisco Bay Area and playing sessions and touring all over the world. I've played sessions in New York and Nashville and Los Angeles, San Francisco, of course. It's kind of a strange thing to have come out of Montana. There are a couple of renowned musicians who have, have come from here. Jeff Amit, you know, and Pearl Jam, who grew up just uh, basically 40 miles from where I grew up. But yeah, you're right, man. There was you know, And in those days, too, when I was growing up, there was not the great access to all kinds of music of the world that there are now. So what I used to do, I played every kind of music I possibly could. And that's what I tell kids, too, when they're coming up. Play for everything. You know, play for your school band, play for your chorus, play for your church, play for the Rotary Club. Somebody asked you to play, play. That's the best experience you can get no matter where you live. But I used to stay up real late at night with my honest-to-God transistor radio under my pillow and listen to K-O-M-A, Oklahoma City. And that's where I got uh, my love of R B, black music. I mean, there, you know, Montana is a pretty white place, and in those days, you did not have access to the kinds of music we have now.
1: You know, it's interesting you say that because although I grew up in New York City, so we had plenty of music and a lot of radio. I used to do the same thing. I take my little transistor radio. It's late at night, and I used to be able to get from so far away because there wasn't the same interference. I mean, kids today don't understand what we're talking about, of course, because transistor radios basically don't exist anymore. But it was, it was so much fun to discover things that were far away. And, you know, that's the way you got into a lot of other music, it appears.
0: It, yeah, it was magic, you know, and, and to listen to that music of, of a sort that, I mean, literally, it was country and Western when I hit high school. There was a little bit of rock and roll. and I always had rock and roll bands with my brother and, and friends from the town and stuff. We played all the, you know, the garage band hits and the hits that we could play. But to hear Marvin Gaye, The Four Tops, and you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like real earthy, gutsy blues, which I got into later. Actually, when I went to Harvard, I took a folk music class and I, I got into all the what they're called the Smithsonian uh, Folkways records now. I know all about Smithsonian folkways. Yeah, you bet the greatest. And and here I was at this institution of higher learning, you know, uh, supposedly the highest learning, and I'm sitting in the library listening to all this stuff that just it turned my head around. It It changed my life to hear all this great early folk music and stuff. And then when I was touring with Elvin Bishop, for the first part of the time I was with him, we were playing smaller clubs, you know, uh, and we would drive around in the south in a station wagon, and we would pull into these little stores that had a few gospel records, a few old blues records, and Bishop would buy all of them. And he had a little portable record player. And we'd go back to our hotel, motel, and we'd go into Bishop's room, and he'd play all this incredible stuff. So that was my education was those first couple of years with Bishop.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. You know, you spoke about the Smithsonian Folkways label. Most people don't know that, you know, in Washington, D.C., there is this enormous repository of American music of all different kinds, Smithsonian Folkways. Yes, sir. I got into that because I owned a record label at one time, way back when. And we were doing some stuff and we had to get some material from Smithsonian Folkways. They couldn't have been nicer about the whole thing, but. The amount of music that they have there and the breadth of music, because America has produced some incredible music, okay? From the deep blues you were referring to, to uh, country, to gospel, to all this stuff. It's been an amazing experience. So tell me this, you're growing up in Montana, you got the transistor radio under the covers, you're listening to the, the station from far away. How'd you get into music? Were were you born into a musical family or what?
0: They were musical. Yeah. My, um, my grandmother was the choir director at the church. And then my mother was a choir director at the church. So and we always had a piano in the house and we always had a record player in the house. And I think the wonder of, you know, you would think it's a disadvantage to, the town I grew up in was a thousand people and then really isolated. I mean, there was nothing around there. You would think that would be a disadvantage, but I think the thing that, turned out to be really good for me was that nobody was telling me this kind of music is the only music you play like you know you might be slotted into a genre if you live in a city you might have uh sort of jazz nazi parents you know and they said jazz is the only kind or rock and roll is the only kind or classical is the only kind well i played all of them and i loved all of them equally and you know i didn't concentrate on some of them because that was not my predilection, you know, but, you know, I still play classical music. I still play chamber music with people. I write pieces for uh, chamber music and orchestra. I write rock and roll songs, you know, with Tommy Johnston of the Doobie Brothers, it's, it's, I've gotten to do everything. And I think it took me a while. And I I always tell kids this, that, you know, really, if you follow your heart, I mean, it's a cliche, it's definitely a cliche, but if you follow your heart and you really listen to who you are, you're going to find your way. For me, it was more difficult because once I got into you know, Harvard, it was like, okay, well, am I a classical musician? Am I a rock and roll musician? Am I a folk musician? Am I a composer? What am I? And it took me you know four years or so for me to finally figure out I'm all those things. And that's where I'm happy. All right, stop right there. You go
1: from Montana, a thousand people in your town, to Harvard. Okay, you got a thousand people in your dorm. Okay. <laughs> what was the thought? I mean, you were in the music program, I assume. What did yeah. you want to be at that point? Did you want to be a player? Did you want to be a composer? What was your idea?
0: It was the big category, musician. Okay. Musician. There, there's, I don't think there's any, uh, you know, handle better than to say, I'm a musician. What does that mean? I had to find out what it was. You know, and there was a lot of pressure. I was studying uh, classical music with uh, the head of the department at the New England Conservatory, and I remember going in there one time and I was playing a Haydn sonata, which is beautiful music, and he was trying to figure out who I was, and he said, well, Philip, you play Haydn so well. Maybe you should specialize in Haydn. And I swear, I just about ran out of that room screaming because the idea of narrowing myself to such a little thing, and then I think probably that same year, Keith Emerson was playing in, in the Nice. I think that was one of his first bands. It was kind of big.
1: Before Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, huh?
0: Before Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. It was, I think it was right after that that Emerson, Lake, and Palmer came out. And I saw him, and I saw that he was you know, using all these different kinds of music, and he was virtuosic, and he was an entertainer, and he was a rocker. But for me, it was, you know, I don't want to play a little bit of uh, Appalachian Spring. I don't want to play a little bit of Mozart. I want to play the whole thing. But he did, and his example encouraged me to say that, oh, yeah, well, who I am is all of those things. And that's what I kept doing.
1: Good for you. That's a great way to go. All right. So tell me this. What came first, Wyndham Hill or Elvin Bishop or that whole side of your
0: career? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually went to uh, Des Moines, Iowa to study Beethoven sonatas with a great teacher there, Kenneth Drake. And at the same time, I was playing a blues band with a bunch of really great musicians. Uh, Des Moines was one of those places where, um, you know, as uh, black people left the deep south and started to go up north, they would stop along. St. Louis, for example, was a great place, Kansas City, on their way to Chicago, on their way to New York. Well, it turns out Des Moines was one of those places, too, and had a, you know, a big legacy of the blues. One of my great friends has moved back there, D'Artagnan Brown, who played in this band with me. And his dad was also a jazz musician, and so that was kind of another great school, playing with those guys in Des Moines. I spent a year there, and then I went over to the Bay Area. I started playing in clubs with another great blues band, Perry and the Pumpers, Perry Welsh, Steve Ehrman, and Bishop would come in and jam with us when he was off the road because a great bunch of, in fact, he would steal musicians from that band, three, <laughs> three of the band that I was in. Were stolen from Perry Welsh's <laughs> band.
1: You were number four. Is that the idea?
0: Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so he would come in and and he uh, he called me one day on the road. We we jammed together and played played a bunch and we enjoyed each other. And he called me and he said, "Hey, Phil, we're going to Macon, Georgia, to make a record. Do you want to come?" I said, "Sure." So I joined the band. We went down to Macon, you know, uh, home of the Allman Brothers and. Uh, Johnny Sandlin, the great producer there, recorded us in the uh, Capricorn Records Studio, and it was a huge place. Really my first big record. I'd done session work with other people before, uh, so I kind of knew what it was all about. Uh, but I got in there, and there was a Confederate flag the size of New Jersey back in the, on the wall, and I said, oh, I'm not in Chester, Montana anymore. That's right. <laughs> so Bishop, and then, you know, I'm... I'm I don't want to picture myself as somebody who gets bored easily, but there are things I get tired of doing. And we were on the road 310 days that first year that I was with Bishop. And, you know, whatever anybody says, you got to be really cut out for that life if you're going to do it continually and over and on. I've done a lot of it. But I got, I got tired of it, and I, I came home and, and started having kids. And then um, people started calling me to play with their band. Steve Miller called me, uh, Pointer Sisters, Bette Midler. There was a band called the Sutherland Brothers and Quiver, who were from Scotland. And then... Uh, These are great phone calls, I might have They were great okay, phone yeah. calls. Uh, and then Peter Gabriel's manager called me. And fortunately, I I knew nothing about Genesis, except that I had just watched a video of Watcher of the Skies, uh, which was one they made at... A, uh, a movie studio in England, and Peter—it was—it's a phenomenal piece, and the the video is pretty great. And I said, "Well, yeah, can I hear the music?" And they sent me a cassette, and of course, it was Peter's first record, which was phenomenal. And at the same time, I was doing a record with Mark Farner of Grand Funk. He's been on the podcast. And I was—I was on Michigan in their Quonset hut in the middle of the winter, and Dick Wagner of. Uh, Alice Cooper's band was there, R&P, what a great guy, RIP, just a great man, great musician, Um, miss him a lot. So I was working with all these great guys, and Wagner asked me to join Alice Cooper's band, but I said, well, I've already committed to go with Peter. So I had a lot of choices in those days. I mean, I'm glad glad I went with Peter Gabriel, and I, I played with him for that first year, and we went over to England.
1: Hold on. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to picture all of this. I mean, <laughs> as you just said, you got everybody in the world, it seems, coming to you saying, please play with me. And you got your pick of all of these guys. I mean, from Peter Gabriel to Alice Cooper. That must have been some heady time for you.
0: It was. Yeah. And Peter, I'm glad I, you know, when I heard Peter's music, it was, it really struck me. Uh, and it, maybe of all his records, it, it is the one that is the most, um, eclectic i think and experimental in some ways you know in terms of the structure of the pieces and uh, lyrics and stuff uh and i love that record and loved playing with him i'm glad i made that choice you know some of it was uh timing the timing was right but also i just was struck by by his vision and i thought you know i can learn a lot from him and the the band was incredible of course tony lovin And I'd already done some sessions with Tony in New York. Steve Hunter, one of the great, great guitarists of all time. Robert Fripp was on that and and, uh, learned stuff from Fripp, you know, and I knew Fripp's music from King Crimson, of course. You know, uh, Alan Schwartzberg, who I'd done a lot of sessions with in New York. You should talk to Alan. He'd be a great guy. Who else was in that band? Larry Fast, uh, Mr. Synergy. Fantastic band.
1: All right. I want to jump ahead a little bit because I want to get to the Wyndham Hill years. Because, you know, you became known as a Wyndham Hill artist. And it's kind of interesting to hear all of this background that you're telling me because you went from one star to another and one kind of genre to another. Why did you get to Wyndham Hill and why did that tickle your fancy?
0: It's another one of those deals where I really didn't know much about that music or that label, but I had played uh, <laughs> I played on a record with my friend Roger Feduras, who is gone now to Roger, rest in peace, great guy, who did a lot for me. And he had, the, he had a hit called Get Used to It. And then I played on the record after that one. And, uh, you know, I was playing kind of in between pieces, trying not to get the piano out of tune and stuff. And Jeff Porcaro was on that. And he came up to me and said, uh, man, your music is really good. How come you're not doing that? So that was really encouraging to me because I'd never thought of myself as a solo artist. But a lot of people encouraged me. Roger Bedouris encouraged me, and at one point he said, I want to be your manager. He said, I'm tired of trying to do this rock and roll stuff. And uh, he managed to get me. uh, That's another long story love to tell you sometime uh, about getting on Wyndham Hill. But essentially Wyndham Hill was, at that point, it wasn't about You know we're going to make mellow records it was about does will ackerman who was the head of windham hill at that point does will ackerman like you as a person and does he like your music and i just did so roger came to me one day and said do you ever hear windham hill and i said yeah i mean i know michael hedges is on that record he's great great guitarist and i don't have any of the records i i don't even know what george winston sounds like and uh he said, well, they want to hear a demo from you. And I said, oh, he said, Friday. This was like Monday, <laughs> I said, I don't want to have a demo. He said, well, we got to get one. He says, because I have a meeting lined up. So we went into uh, uh, a college down in Hayward, California. A friend of mine was, was running the studio there. And we recorded a bunch of songs. None of them were written up. They were all improvisations. Every single one of those songs was an improv, and we edited the improvs and sent them to Wyndham Hill. And it was like, okay, well, it's almost too easy. They they signed me to that. There were some other things that went along with that, but
1: isn't that interesting? You know, Wyndham Hill. I guess maybe it didn't start out in a certain way, but they became known for that whole new age thing. Or chamber jazz, you know, they call it that genre as well. Yeah, yeah. Like you mentioned George Winston, he was the king of Wyndham Hill, as far as I could tell. Yeah. And it was just, you know, I, I always admired them in the sense that they carved out a certain niche for themselves. And uh, that's hard to do in music because everybody is, you know, cannibalizing everybody else's stuff. But they had a certain niche and you did very well there. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. You know, one of the many benefits to me of doing this podcast is being able to collaborate musically with some of my guests who are among the best musicians in the world. My first collaboration was with the great Jim Peterick of the Ides of March and formerly with Survivor. Jim and I collaborated on The Fall of Winter, a song about a blue-collar worker who dreams of a better life. Also contributing was Elliot Randall, the renowned guitarist. John Helliwell was the amazing saxophonist in Supertramp, one of the greatest bands of the rock era. John collaborated with me on my 2023 album, Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade, and he's featured on several tracks. One of them is This Time. Tony Carey is a singer-songwriter and keyboard genius who played with Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Tony has collaborated with me on several recordings, including his exquisite organ playing on All of the Time.
2: I want you all of the time I need you all of the time
1: And I'm finishing up a new collaboration right now with trumpeter Randy Brecker formerly with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Collaborations like these make the podcast very special indeed. As always, thank you for listening, and keep on rocking. All right, I want to go to the Songfest portion of this interview so people can hear what we've been talking about. The first thing I'm playing is Upright, which is from your Live From Montana album.
0: Tell us a little bit about that one. Well, yeah, after Windham Hill, I mean, I got tired of Windham Hill, too. (laughs) So after Windham Hill, my wife and I started Sweetgrass Music as a record company. And that was one of the first records that we put out. And that was a benefit for my hometown hospital. We recorded that as a benefit at the school auditorium. Isn't that amazing? On a piano that I had helped the town buy, get together and buy. And... Upright was originally on a Wyndham Hill record with a bunch of L.A. studio guys. And I liked the piece so much that I had to figure out a solo piano version of it. And that's what this is.
1: It's a beautiful piece for sure. And I love the fact that you recorded this live in an auditorium, okay? You don't hear too many records like that. All right, let's go to the next one, Every Deep Dream, which is also from live from Montana.
0: Deep dream, yeah, uh that's one that people really like, and I played that all over the world, and that was also originally on uh a record called Upright on Wyndham Hill, and that was the last record that I made for them, and then uh, you know, I liked that piece a lot too, so I had to figure out how in the world I was going to play that, even though there were six people on that track, you know the original track, so figured it out, and uh, I play it solo a lot. Every Deep Dream is uh, actually a line from a book by John Hersey called Blues. Not the music, but the fish.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the solo piano stuff, I mean, it resonates. It's beautifully recorded. You know, you still maintained, if you will, kind of that Wyndham Hill sound when you were doing the solo stuff. The next one is actually from that album, Upright uptight excuse me upright. um yeah. upright not uptight <laughs> were you uptight when you were recorded upright? uptight out of sight okay out of sight right <laughs> frogman we're talking about Us about that,
0: yeah, frogman. So, Vinny Kaliuta, one of my favorite drummers of all time. Oh, he's the best, he really is. And I mean, and I had done some sessions with him in LA, uh, you know, on various, I think, country records. Actually, that's what we were doing. Just knew you're Newton. kidding. No,
1: I gotta hear Vinny Kaliuta playing country. Okay,
0: he can play anything, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, he was doing the country stuff. You know, the other guys who knew him really well would say, Hey, Vinny. Play that deal where you do like four beats with your, uh, with your (laughs) drum and seven with your hi-hat and then three with your, you know, he could do that. I know he can. So he'd just do it. But had one of the greatest backbeats in the world, you know. And so I asked Vinny to play on this record thinking, well, Fat Chance. And he did. And this was just, for some reason that day, we didn't have a bass player. (laughs) So I said, hey, well, let's just do it together. So it's just piano and drums.
1: Yeah, beautiful. He's something special. I, I remember seeing him play with Sting. And like you said, it's like his his limbs are disjointed because he can play different beats with each different limb. Just amazing. <laughs> right. All right. Let me get to that big hit of yours that you played on. Fooled around and fell in love with Elvin Bishop. Tell us about that one.
0: You know, Mickey Thomas came on later. We, when we I toured with Elvin early, we didn't have Mickey in the band, but Mickey would always play backup vocals on the records and stuff. He's from Valdosta, Georgia. So we would come in, and, and at rehearsals, Elvin would bring this song out, Fooled Around, Fell in Love. <laughs> and everybody in the band just would, man, That is absolutely beautiful why don't we record and I think we went a couple records before we actually recorded it after he had written it he said why don't we do that he said oh man I can't sing it it's not me and then Mickey joined the band as backup singer and he started singing that song and of course he has one of the greatest voices ever in my mind, Vicky is just such a great, great singer. There's, there's actually a live version on YouTube of Mickey singing that song. That's even better than the record. It's just like, it's crazy. So we started doing that record, and then in the meantime, I got, <laughs> I got tired of touring, and so I quit the band. But Owen asked me. I think I did four records after I quit the band. So Owen asked me if I play on this record, which was at. Uh, Criterion sound in Miami, where the Eagles recorded, and Bill Simzik, who did, uh, you know, great BB King head and some Eagles stuff, was the producer. So the it's, the cool thing for me was people would say, "Well, what did what was your childhood dream?" And I'll say, one thing I really had as a kid was I wanted to hear myself on the radio. So I was in New York playing on Henry Gross's Shannon, and then immediately after that i flew down to miami and played on fooled around and fell in love and both of those records were on the radio in the top 10 at the same time so i like, got a double header it was great all right <laughs> check one
1: off of the uh the bucket list there for sure okay that's very cool all right i gotta do one older one from you you were on angel of the morning by juice newton Tell us about that one that was a big hit
0: too it was a big hit yeah uh charlie colello was uh, the arranger on that who's also a, a hero big hero you know of the music been around forever and uh juice was she's so great and uh her husband at the time otho was such a great guy and you know really bunch of wonderful la studio musicians and uh i think i, I don't know if i played four or five of, of her records really enjoyed that. But Angel of the Morning came up, and we did this uh, arrangement of it. So the, the funny story later about that is that I was sitting in the theater with uh, my son, my youngest son. We were watching Guardians of the Galaxy, and Fooled Around came on, and because it was in that movie. And, and he said, hey, Dad, that sounds like you. And he was pretty little. I said, yeah, it is me, Jake. So, but I was impressed that he could pick out my playing from that. So then we were riding somewhere, I think we were flying to Africa or something, and Jake was sitting in front of me and they were playing the movie Deadpool. And the first song on Deadpool was Angel of the Morning. So I tap Jake on the shoulder and say, hey Jake, played on that one too. <laughs> <laughs> you recognize that one? No, because the piano part's a little, you know, it's an orchestral feeling song.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit underneath on
0: that one. It is, yeah.
1: All right. Well we have been talking here. With a fantastic musician, Phil Auberg. Phil, you've played with everybody. It's quite remarkable. You made it out of Montana. I'm very proud of you, but then you went right back into the state. So you're the king of the, you're the musician king of Montana. I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's been so much fun.
0: Oh, thank you, Robert. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate everything you're doing.
1: All right. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to play that song of mine that started off the uh, podcast. It's called Because She Said So. I want to thank you all for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com and you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com.